So welcome to Knowing Me, Knowing Ed You podcast with um, Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire, Professor and Deputy Lieutenant of Hertfordshire, Alison Peacock, is that correct? <laughs> yes. It is, yes. yes. And is that how I should refer to you at all times? Or, or, <laughs> Absolutely or, 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 not. Absolutely, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. okay, thank you for being a guest on our podcast. The idea of which is to have an informal and more personal type of chat but one that's grounded in education. So we're going to have a chat about your time at school, your background, and your work in education. And at the end, we'll ask uh, the question that we always ask, what one change to the education system would you make if you were in charge for the day? But first, would you introduce yourself, who you are, what you do? So I'm Alison Peacock. I'm the Chief Executive of the new Chartered College of Teaching and proud to say I'm a teacher. Yes, well, I'm going to add a few more things to that. Um, correct me if any of these are wrong, but uh, also public speaker, TES columnist, uh, Teach First trustee, member of the Royal Society Education Committee, a peer member of the Teaching Schools Council. If this is right, if sources are correct, 11 publications to your name, including Learning Without Limits. I haven't counted them, to be honest. No, learning without that's, limits that's the, the right one. answer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you've advised on numerous government groups, um, and we think you're generally a force to be reckoned with and uh, a friend <laughs> of the Queen. Have okay. I missed anything off there? Yeah, that sounds enough, doesn't it? Well, I see on the wall, actually, the uh, National Leader of Education. I didn't have on my list, but there's a, there's a certificate there, a plaque. So if I haven't missed anything, are there any like claims to fame that, that we could add to that? Something that people might not know about you? For example, I once appeared in the gritty northeast based drama Biker Grove. That's my claim to fame. Did you? Yeah, I'm, I don't know. I can't think of anything off the top of my head apart from that I spent three and a half months of my sixth form experience in a hospital bed because uh, we had a motorbike accident oh. with my then boyfriend, now husband, when I was 17. So that was an interesting interlude. Yeah, a good childhood. start. And you've met the Queen. I mean, that's, and I have met the Queen. Yeah, I'm going to ask about that later, but I'm going to start by asking about the earlier part of your life. So where did you grow up and what was primary and secondary school like for you? So I started school in London at Oakthorpe School. I've since been back and met the head who's there now. It all looks incredibly different. Then we moved to Hertfordshire. My mum and dad were both teachers and... Then I went to secondary school just outside Bishop Stortford, and I guess the biggest claim to fame of that school is now closed, is that one of our teachers was murdered. So yeah, that was, um, and we, didn't, we were terribly, terribly hard about it in school. I remember us in sixth form kind of laughing and saying, oh, wonder where the body is. So um, yeah, that was my Whoa. primary and secondary education. I didn't really, I didn't really enjoy school. I particularly remember in primary school, um, I would be really involved in, in a book and then they'd say you had to put the book away and you couldn't read it anymore and we weren't allowed to take books home. So I would be desperate, I'd be reading something, I'd be desperate to get to the next bit of it and I'd have to wait until we were allowed to read in class. That was always very frustrating. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, quite different have, now. Yeah, do you have standout memories of, of time at school? I just, I think I remember feeling herded about quite a lot of the time. I don't think... I don't think I felt noticed for who I was. And, and I, I was, was tried to be sort of, I suppose I was quite well behaved. Um, I was tried to sort of work hard and do my best kind of thing. But 
I didn't re I didn't really enjoy it. I, I kind of always felt, you know, oh, gosh, what's the next thing you've got to do? Yeah. Sort of lack of lack of individuality, I suppose. I've made up for it since. Yeah. Well, are there any <laughs> particular teachers though that you remember along the way, um, memorable for good reasons or or bad? So we had a wonderful teacher when uh, I did A level history, and our teacher, Mrs. Davy. She was incredibly dedicated. I mean, she used to write pages and pages of notes. This is way before the scripted lesson. You know, she used to write pages and pages of notes in preparation for our A-level lessons. There were a group of, I think, six of us that were doing A-level history. And then we'd done our A-levels. And in the summer holiday following doing our A-levels, she arranged for us to go to France to visit Paris and the Palace of Versailles and so on. So she wasn't doing it because she was wanting us to do well in the exams. She was doing it because she had sort of inspired a love of history and the history we'd been reading about and talking about and finding out about. And she wanted us to actually go and experience what it would be, be like to be there. She drove the minibus. I mean, fantastic, really, when you think about it. Um, yeah, so she's somebody that stands out in my mind. There were some other teachers that stand out in my mind because they were incredibly strict. And so I remember we had a physics teacher who I just never understood a single word of anything yeah. that he said, but I wouldn't have dared ask a question, you know, and it was all about making sure that you got your ruler and made underlined everything neatly and so on. But I never understood any of the physics, which is a bit of a shame, especially as I'm now on the Royal Society Education Committee. <laughs> right, okay. So, Catching up now. Hmm. Hmm. Bit late. Um, and I think I've heard you talk in a, in a, a TED talk, I think you, you did, of not really enjoying school all that mm. much. So at what point did the idea of uh, being a teacher sort of first pop into your mind, do you think? Well, I think the thing is, because if you've got parents who are teachers, then yeah. everybody always says to you, well, I suppose you're going to be a teacher. So my default reaction throughout the whole of my childhood, and even when I was first at university, was that I wasn't going to be a teacher, just because I never really thought about it, other than I didn't want to be like my mum and dad, I wasn't going to just do that. And then when I was coming to the end of my degree, I did a degree in English and drama, and I was thinking about, well, actually, what are you going to do next, Alison? And I thought, oh, maybe I could go and work in school. There we are. So I was kind of, I probably, those in my family would probably say, oh, well, she was always going to do it. She was, I remember playing schools with my teddies and things. And yeah. They never answered back. It was great. Uh, but I, I hadn't let myself believe I was going to do that until, until I nearly finished my degree, and I thought, so I went and did a postgraduate qualification at the University of Warwick. Did your parents put you off the idea or did, did they pass, did they give any opinion on a career as a teacher? I think they both, they were both primary teachers and I think they both worked incredibly hard but um, enjoyed what they were doing. But if you are the child of, in a family where your parents are teachers, everything ends up in school. So where, you know, whatever you, you know, they'd always say, you'd say, where's that? Oh, it's gone to school, you know? So, they, and, and I would, I remember my mum was often studying in the evening. She was, she did a maths diploma at Cambridge, I remember, and she clearly really enjoyed doing that. But I just remember there, there was an awful lot of work associated with it, but that wasn't what put me off. I'd never been frightened of hard work. I think it was more just that. I didn't want to just be, do the thing that everybody thought I would do. No, I needed to do something different, except I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here we are now. And here um, we are now. <laughs> okay. And would um, when you think back to time at school, primary or even secondary, um, are there any particular bands or um, 
events in the news, things that stand out as particular memories before I ask you for a, a song of that time? So the summer of 76 was the summer that I did my O-levels. So it was an incredibly hot summer. Uh, and that was also the time when I met my now husband. So I remember sort of being madly in love and trying to revise for O-levels and lots of sunshine outside and wishing I wasn't doing that. I sort of remember, I remember all of that. Um, I actually, yeah, it was great, 76, it was a, it was a, it was a good time to be a, a yeah. teenager. Yeah. I'm going to ask about your husband, John, later, because I just have this vision of him with you sort of doing so much that he's just sort of, I don't know, a stay-at-home husband who maybe gives you your <laughs> pat lunch in the morning Gives you a kiss and waves you off to work or something. Strange to tell, James. Strange to tell. Okay, I'll ask about that later. Yeah, okay. And have you got a, a song choice for us? So I think Ain't No Mountain High Enough would be the song I would choose. I, I remember kind of thinking how motivating that was. And I also remember in sort of subsequent years dancing in the kitchen with my daughters and singing that at the top of my voice, so here we are, I'll choose yeah, that one. Yeah, I love that song. <laughs> Listen, baby, ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide enough, baby. If you need me, call me, no matter where you are, no matter how far. Don't worry, baby. Just call my name, I'll be there in a hurry. You don't have to worry. So what did you get up to after school? You mentioned that you um, you went to university and then you did your PGCE mm -hmm. at Warwick. Um, and then was it straight into teaching? Yes, my first teaching job was uh, in Harlow at Parsons Secondary School, which is the, you know, the famous Educating Essex now. Oh, yeah. And it was, uh, it was a real 
baptism of fire. So I'd trained to be a primary teacher, but there weren't any primary jobs. And I lived in Hertfordshire, and I happened to see this tiny advert in the local paper for Parsons Secondary School. And they wanted someone to teach general subjects. So, and because I'd done a primary um, qualification, I thought, well, I could apply to do that. So essentially, um, I went for the interview. And all of the time that I was at the interview, I was thinking, oh my goodness, supposing they offered me the job. <laughs> because it was a really tough school. It was an 11 to 16 comprehensive. Uh, they wouldn't let us be out in the corridor when it was change of lessons. So when the bell went for change of lessons, they had to make sure we were other, anywhere other than in the corridor. Because once you experienced what it was like to be in the corridor when the, when the lessons changed, you knew that you got flattened if you weren't careful. Uh, and they wanted someone who could sort of generally kind of fill in the timetable, really. So they said to me, well, you're primary trained, so you could teach English and history. And I think I taught one lesson a week of music and some art. And, um, and I also had the library as a responsibility as an, as an NQT. So that was, that was tough. And about, probably about halfway through the autumn term, you know what it's like as an NQT, you know, it's exhausting. And there weren't, there weren't any schemes of work either. There. So there were no books, <laughs> there were no schemes of work and there was no internet. <laughs> so in terms of knowing what to teach and kind of doing everything for the first time as an NQT, it's tough anyway. But this was really tough because I just hadn't got any materials. So I was having to sort of, you know, buy books and read things up and try and be one step ahead of the, of the children. And about halfway through that autumn term, I remember I'd got one class that I would teach on a Tuesday. I still remember it was a Tuesday, the last lesson of the day. And they were first, second and third years back then. They weren't seven, eight, nine. So it was 2G. And this was a class that I was supposed to teach for the last 40 minutes of the day on a Tuesday. And on the timetable, it said silent reading, which is problematic when you have no books. Uh, it's also problematic when you can't get control of the class. So the idea that I was teaching silent reading for 40 minutes... <laughs> And so every single week I would try and think, what can I do this week with this class, broadly in the theme of reading and, and English, that will mean that they listen to me for more than about five minutes. And I just remember coming home after one of these Tuesday afternoons and just bursting into tears and saying to my dad, I just can't do it, it's just too difficult, and you know, I just can't be a teacher, I just can't carry on. And he said, oh, well, all right then, love, you know. And my mum came home and she said, she's not leaving. <laughs> but it... Honestly, if I could have run away at that moment, because it feels like a kind of, if you've ever taught a class that you haven't really got control of, it feels like a ritual humiliation. It's like an ultimate bullying. It's just, it's just the most humbling and horrific of experiences, really, because you feel like you're being laughed at, because you, uh, yeah, you are, and you're trying to do the best you can, and they can see you are, but they're not going to be sympathetic anyway. And yet, you know what, at the end of that, that year, because I, I stayed a year in the school and then I moved to Leicestershire, we were getting married. And uh, at the end of that year, some of the kids in that class and in other classes, but some of the kids in that class got together, put some money together, bought me a wedding present. One of the particular girls, I can remember, she was bigger than I was. Her name was Josephine. And I just remember her saying to me, Miss, you know, why are you leaving? And I remember thinking, because you've been an absolute... <laughs> Because <laughs> you've been horrible to me all year long. But having said all of that, you know, um, the feedback and the warmth you get from youngsters in schools like that is is much greater than in some of the schools where the children know to be much more polite because they appreciate you so much more. They, they appreciate the fact that you even come back and see them again the next day. 
Um, and the school I moved to in Leicestershire was a big community college and similarly there were children there, young people there with incredibly challenging sort of backgrounds and so on but you you know you do feel that you're doing something worthwhile when they connect with you. They undo it all again when they then spit yeah, yeah. in your face or whatever it might be. But it, it was certainly a baptism of fire. It was certainly, I learned a tremendous amount um, by doing that and I think, I hope it's made me more humble as an educator. I think similarly when, when I had my two daughters, Catherine and Elizabeth, if I'd only ever had Catherine, I would have thought that it was all down to the mother or the parenting as to whether the child wanted to get a book and read or not. Because when I had Catherine, she would come and sit on my lap and she'd say, you know, more stories, more stories, and we could sit there for hours. And then three years later, when Liz arrived, I'd say, do you want to come and read with mummy? Do you want to come? And she'd go, no, programs, programs. And she'd have her finger in her mouth and all she wanted to watch was the television. And I think, I mean, Liz is wonderful, but had I not had Liz, I probably would have thought, oh, it's all to do with parenting. And had I not worked in Harlow, if I hadn't worked in that kind of community and in the community in Leicestershire, I might have thought, I might not have understood, you know, just how difficult the job can be, but how wonderful it can be as well. So it's... When you moved um, to Leicestershire, did you go to another secondary school? Yes, was that when you it was a community college. It was Reek Valley, which is a... Um, Leicestershire was a very innovative authority, and they'd built this huge community college in the shape of a ziggurat. So it was kind of like a kind of stepped pyramid. And in the centre of the school was the library and resource area, and everything was centred around the library and resource area. They had a theatre as well. And the job that I applied for and got was to work some of the time in the, the library resource area with a whole range of students across the whole school. Also to work with um, youngsters with special educational needs and then to be a tutor to a year seven class and ultimately I ended up teaching English and humanities. Uh, so I was there for three years um, and I, when I remember going for the interview and thinking <laughs> this school is a lot further away from the University of Warwick where my husband was doing a master's degree than I thought it was because it was you know, pretty much Leicester and Coventry is quite a long way away from there. But if they offer me this job, I just can't resist. And then I, I was offered the job and I remember saying to John, it's okay, we'll rent somewhere in the middle between Leicester and Warwick, it'll be fine. But then actually we ended up renting a cottage right next door to the school. Oh. So, he, <laughs> so he had to commute in his little mini all the way from Warwick backwards and forwards when he was doing his, uh, his masters. But I just couldn't resist the school because there was something very exciting about it, the way it had been designed and the whole notion that resources in the library were going to be at the heart of everything that everybody did in terms of their, their studies. So your teaching career could have been quite different. You could have settled into secondary. Yep. Did yep. at some point you remember that you'd trained as a primary teacher? And, so what, you... no, what happened was, well, I, I always knew that. Yeah. What happened was, there was a real kind of pivotal moment, actually, because I remember I'd got two interviews in the same week, and this was because... John had um, done his master's and he um, was working as an accountant in London and obviously we needed to move. He wasn't going to commute from Leicester to London. And I had two interviews in the same week, one of which was to go and teach English at Stantonbury campus in Milton Keynes. You know, very kind of radical school, huge campus. And the other interview, which was the one that was the first interview, was to go and to work for the advisory service in Hertfordshire to work with primary and secondary schools and that was the job that I got but had the timing been different had I been offered a job at Stantonbury I would never have left secondary and, and years later I actually went back 
to visit Stanterbury campus. I hadn't visited it at the time. I'd heard about it, but I hadn't been there. And I remember when I went on that visit, and it was as a guest of the head teacher, and I remember thinking, it would have been like Reek Valley. It would have been, I would have gone there and I would have thought, I can't resist this. Because there were communities within communities, and it was, at the time, the leadership was such that it was a very democratic school, and, uh, yeah, it would have been somewhere that I probably would have stayed had I gone there. So. Yeah, and what was the transition like from secondary to primary? Because, interestingly, I just came across... Um, an article by Alana Gay of Lee Valley Primary School. She's in one of the Chartered College videos, actually. But it was about her... She moved from secondary to primary. I was really surprised by the comments that she um, she describes that she got from the secondary colleagues about the real sort of step down to primary mm, in this yeah. kind of... Oh, yeah, there's a lot of that about, isn't there? But I didn't... So the way it worked was I moved from the secondary experience to the advisory role, and then um, I was expecting Catherine... And so then I took maternity leave, which then lasted for seven years. So I was on maternity <laughs> So I took a career break for seven years, which I think is really important that people know, actually. And in that time, uh, I did my master's at Cambridge um, for two of those years. And when I went to do the master's, I decided I wanted to focus on early years because I'd got my own very young daughter. And I wanted to also learn more about special educational needs because I'd always been very interested in that. And so my master's for two years was focusing on that. And I was working in several schools, um, just sort of doing some supply or doing some part-time contracts. But I didn't work full-time for seven years while Liz and Catherine were at home. And so that was um, when I went back into full-time teaching. It was to go back into a small village primary school. So I'd gone from a school with over 2,000 students in it to starting in a school that had less than 100 students in it. And I was teaching um, in early years, which is like as different as it could possibly have been from what I was doing. And I was working with a, a class of 17 children who were nursery reception, year one and year two, all in the same class, 17 what? of them across that uh, age range. But it was a, and I was there, I think, for two years before I then moved on to the next primary school. But that experience of Engaging in the research and writing my thesis and really thinking deeply about the whole process of learning and then also having my own daughters who I was privileged to spend a lot of time with and play with them and watch them learn. It, was, it felt a very, you know, a very special time in my life. It was mm. lovely. And I think the fact that I didn't at any stage feel... <laughs> when things happen later on, you know, and uh, they were objectionable in whichever way it might be, I never kind of thought, oh, well, maybe I should have spent more time with them. I never sort mm. of looked back and I just felt very fortunate that, that I was able to spend that time. And we did, we, you know, there were times when we really didn't have any money. So it was very much about trying to put my desire to be with the children first. It wasn't that we were awash with cash and therefore it was fine. Yeah. Um, it was much more that... And so often, you know, teachers spend so much time teaching everybody else's children and then you don't have time to spend with your own. So I feel very lucky I had that time. So you had the career, you've had the career that you've had with a seven-year career break yeah. in there as well. Yeah. I don't know what, what I think about that. Rightly or wrongly, I probably assume, probably wrongly, that, you know, you, your career will be hampered and it perhaps is for some people by having a, a break for so long. And But did, were you aware of... 
were you thinking at the time, oh, this, this is, this is going to affect my career, or did you think it would just be fine? Um, if you'd have asked me... Were you worried were you, about if you'd, No. I think if you'd have said to me, Alison, uh, in the future, you're going to receive a damehood and you're going to run an organisation for the whole profession, I would have thought that was yeah. just not very plausible at all. Although, although... When I was seven, and we were living in Hertfordshire, and we'd moved to Hunsdon, and there was a family across the road uh, called the Scardifield family, and Max was the younger brother, and he, um, he came over to our house one day, and we decided we were going to set up a museum in my dad's garage. We didn't tell my dad. We just decided we were going to set up this museum. Max was mainly driving this agenda because he'd got some rocks and fossils that he thought needed to be in a museum. And I was saying, well, my dad's a carpenter. He's bound to build us some glass-topped cases. He's bound to do that. And we could have it. We could have this museum in the garage. And then we decided that we were going to dig in the garden to see if we could find anything else to put in in the museum. And as luck would have it, we came across uh, in the garden um, a tin helmet, a World War II tin helmet that we... Like we were like archaeologists and we'd dug this up and we brushed it all and it was all rusty and everything else. And then Max had to go home to lunch. Um, and he, when he came back after lunch, he's, he'd been having a conversation with his mother and he said, well, now that we found this treasure, um, I've decided in my future that I'm going to become a professor and I'm also going to be knighted. Oh, and I right. said, oh, so well, that's, <laughs> so he got out of and I said, oh, well, that's, that's, you know, what am I, what am I going to do then? And that doesn't seem very fair because I dug it up as well. And I remember him saying, well, the most you can be is a dame. You can't, you can't be a sir. And I remember being a bit disappointed at the time. Anyway, so kind of all the years forward, when uh, I received the letter from the cabinet office to say that I'd been, uh, uh, that the Queen was um, content that I should be, <laughs> that I should be, uh, should become a dame. Yes. That, um, and I, one of my first thoughts, apart from thinking it's a mistake, was, I wonder if Max is a knight. Yeah, exactly. And he's not. That's what I was thinking. I looked at oh, you checked it out. <laughs> right, I've got anyway. quite a few questions here that I want to, to I want to pick out some of the things that you've you've talked about there. Um, the difference between when you started teaching to the profession now. Yes. What what what? <laughs> so when I first started teaching, as I've said, there were no there was no internet. This does make a difference. Yeah. So sure. in terms of preparing lessons. And in terms of producing resources for lessons, and there were you know, no computer, so no whiteboard, no PowerPoint. Um, so it was if you wanted to produce a resource where you wanted the children to fill something in, you had to produce a like a banda machine, like banda um, worksheet. I, and you see, having said that, I couldn't have looked forward to say that I was going to get a damehood. I did used to put three colours on my banda worksheets with illustrations. <laughs> See, there's an art form to all of this. Yeah. Uh, so how has that changed? Well, that's that's a huge difference. Yeah. But then what's the same? Well, what's the same is the connection that you make with the class, the relationship you establish, the use of humour, the warmth. Uh, but your need to be knowledgeable, you know, is fundamentally important. Uh, I didn't have any... I went on no courses whatsoever. So yeah. although I'd moved from a primary training into a secondary school, I had never, ever set foot inside any kind of... I can't remember when the first time when I went to a conference, probably when I moved into the advisory service myself. So there was no kind of... And I don't remember staff meetings. Um, don't remember anything, really, that was about growing me as a professional. Just get on with it. Just get on with it. And, and also, I mean, there was very little monitoring as well. I think the deputy head walked in the room sort of twice in the 
time I was there in that first year in Harlow, there wasn't a riot going on, so that was all fine. So in terms of professional growth and collegiality and being able to learn from one another, you know, being able to do the Masters was a huge opportunity mm. um, and a real, you know, real luxury really to be able to do that and not be teaching full time at the same time. Because I don't, I really don't, still to this day, I don't know how people manage to teach a full timetable and do a Masters degree, you know, and write a thesis. I mean, yeah. goodness, it's so hard. Um, what what um, one piece of advice or top tip would you have for NQTs, teachers starting out now? Something that you wish you wish you knew when you started could be quite a small thing. Well, I think it took me quite a while to realise that the job never finishes. It's tempting to think that you ought to have got it all done by the end of the day, and but you never can. I, I don't think I ever kind of finished a day and kind of went, oh, great, everything done, you know, all displays neat, every book marked, every parent spoken to that I wanted to, every child. You know, I feel like you have to... You have to recognise that you have to constantly prioritise about what, what's the most important thing I can do with the time that I've got um, and try and get some sleep at some point. Yeah, and then it's sort of okay that you haven't got through everything because it's yeah. almost not possible. Yeah, and they also, I think the other thing that I remember someone telling me at the time, which I have always found to be true, and that is when you come in the next day, the children start again afresh. You know, they don't bear a grudge. So if you were great the day before and this day you're rubbish they'll punish you for it but then if you're great again the next day that'll be fine so they do start each day afresh they don't kind of hold it against you <laughs> so there's always the opportunity to improve which is thank goodness really you mentioned archaeology and I'm sure I've read or heard about you talking about when you started at uh, Roxham about going to car boot sales yeah. and buying old dusty bottles that have been yeah. buried yeah. and, and, and is that did you get the idea from you and Max playing in the garage, maybe? I think there's a there's a there's something in me. I was talking about it this morning at a conference about me thinking if I was a child, either in my own classroom or if I was a child right. in the school where I'm in, what would I find irresistible? So things like, you know, being able to clean up bottles that have been covered in mud for a hundred years. That would be exciting. Yeah. Um, things like I had the skull of a horse and the skull of a bull, and the bull had a bullet hole through its head. Having those displayed in the school in my first week when I went in as a head, that's pretty exciting. You know, you can't be cool about that. They don't sell those in IKEA. So those kinds of things, I like the notion of a bit of provocation that makes you kind of think, oh, actually, I can't help myself. I might be interested. Yeah, I love that. I remember you and you were at a conference years and years ago and talking about making learning irresistible. And I don't think I'd ever really thought about mm. it like mm. that. Mm. And I was quite excited about that, that mm. prospect. So that seems to be kind of, when you went to Wroxham, you, you talk about instilling sort of just hope in the school yeah. and, and making it an irresistible place to be. And so that, that was the kind of the, the plan. I've heard yeah. you talk about how you, you couldn't make it much worse. No, that was the plan. And it's the plan for what I'm doing now as well. So I think going there is in a school where things were in a pickle, you know, people were exhausted and the children were pretty demotivated when they were in lessons, but then outside they wanted to kill each other, you know, so there was an awful lot of kind of negative energy around the place. And so I've always quite enjoyed that notion of restoring order from chaos. 
again, that's why I'm in this job now. So that idea of, of um, yeah, being able to make things better and uh, and surprising people with goodness almost. People, it, it's interesting, isn't it? If if you know, if you have an angry parent who comes storming into school, often what they really need is just a real good listening to. Mm-hmm. And then if you say, how about a cup of tea? You know, they don't expect you to do that because they expect you to be offended or kind of be on your high horse because they feel they perhaps have acted out of turn. And, and if you, you can take a more generous view, yeah. typically that works. I don't want to sound like Mother Teresa, but on the other hand, it is about, I think, trying to connect with people. It's the same skill as you have in a classroom. Yeah. And... Um... When, at what point, um, I don't want to go into the whole sort of history of Roxham, but at what point did you start to get noticed? Because obviously you've been asked to be on advisory groups and all. Do you remember when that started? <coughs> you know, what, how did people come to know about what you were doing and why? So it's interesting you ask that question because I think even when I was at Parsonals, I was constantly sort of saying, well, it could be other than this. So, you know, given that I was only an NQT back then, leave alone the head going into a school in difficulty. Because at the time, I remember there was a, there was a the space shuttle was piggybacking on an aircraft that was going to fly. It was going around the world and it was going to fly. The flight path was going to go across where the school was situated. And I remember thinking, I would really like to see that. I would like to see that in the sky. And I was in a school of 900 young people. And my class was the only class that suddenly felt it needed to go and do a drawing lesson at the point where this aircraft was going to fly overhead. And I hope, I have no way of knowing, I very much hope that some of those kids in that class remember seeing that. So I think I've always been a bit of a rule breaker, really. I think I've always kind of thought we ought to do something different. It's more important than just following the rules as they've always been. What was the point of just staying in the classroom on that day? You know, we needed to go out and see yeah. that, that thing. And so I think as a head teacher, I mean, before becoming a head teacher, I'd been involved in, I'd done my master's and then I was involved in the first Learning Without Limits study. Yeah. And then things that we were doing in school, I would tend to kind of, I'd be contacting the university or other places and saying, these children are doing amazing things. You really ought to come and see what they're doing. So I've always been kind of, wanting to sort of push at the boundaries and say we need to notice when things are going well it's not about it's never been about me it's always been about a restlessness to say how do we make things better and if you're doing something interesting and the children are doing something interesting it's always been like well, come and see come and see yeah so i think that Show carried right through into headship so i think very early on uh but even 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 in that first term, even in the first term when I was there and we were waiting for the next HMI inspection because the school was in special measures, that incident that you refer to about the children cleaning up the Victorian bottles, I phoned the local authority advisor and said, "Why don't you come and see what's happening?" Because I thought it'd be great approbation for what's going on, you know. So I think I've always been a bit like that. Just kind of come and see because this is really great. Yeah, yeah. Sharing, and it kind of makes everybody feel a bit like, ooh, we could try that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it snowballed from there. That's uh, rather. Yeah. Um, so how does changing um, the conversation entirely, the line of conversation, how does someone become a deputy lieutenant of Hertfordshire? <laughs> Not that I'm interested in the role myself, but... Um, <laughs> I never knew such draw, thing existed. Do you draw too much attention to yourself? And then <laughs> no, someone, no, it's because... Every county in the country has a Lord Lieutenant who is the Queen's representative. 
and appointed by the Queen, directly by the Queen. So if the Queen comes to visit that county, then that would be that person would be sort of there to greet and so on. And of course, there's a lot of work associated with that. So then they need to have deputies that they can call on at different points for different functions where people want recognition. So if there's a celebration, a community celebration, they may apply to the Lord Lieutenant and say, you know, we'd like you to come as the Queen's representative, we'd like you to come and see what we've been doing. And so therefore, um, when I received my damehood, I also subsequently got a letter in the post saying, would I agree to being appointed? You got two for one. <laughs> Indeed. So that's what the DL is after my name, Deputy Lieutenant. Ah, I see. So you have to live in the county in which you would be carrying out that role. So it's a huge honour. Yeah, absolutely. And well, I was only preparing for this chat on the subject of titles that I learnt that the full Dame title is Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire. <laughs> so I was going to ask, do either titles come with actual duties? And I guess the deputy one, yes. But yes. it sounds like if we go to war, Dame Commander of the Order of the British <laughs> Empire. Yeah, you wouldn't want me on the battlefield, I'll tell you. No, 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 it's all right. I haven't got an army. I haven't got a private army for either of those roles. I mean, in, in terms of Becoming a dame, I think it has massively added to my confidence. I think it's a huge honour, it's a huge recognition and no, there's no duties, there's no money, there's no sort of reward that comes with it, but there is a, a sense of recognition that just sometimes, I mean, I would never ever use my title to try and influence anything, but I think sometimes you know that inner voice that tells you, oh, it's only you, you're not good enough, someone else is better mm. than you. I think that, that inner voice of doubt has been quietened down a little bit, which is quite helpful. Nice, yeah. Tell, please tell me about meeting the Queen. So what, what happens? So, so when, you, when you receive an honour at the palace, then um, you're invited and you can, oh, I could take two members of my family, which was, um, three members of my family, sorry, both my daughters and my husband came. And then um, I was fortunate that the Queen was um, was there, and essentially um, you arrive at the pal- we arrived at the palace, and the family went one way up the stairs, and the kind of people who were going to be honoured went another way up the stairs, and then we were told what was going to happen. Unfortunately, if you're a dame and not a knight, then you don't have to be sort of you don't have to have the sword. Oh, the sword, yeah. No, you, don't, you don't have to have that. But okay. um, essentially, you know, you're waiting in a line, and then you're called forward, and then. You, you curtsy and you move forward and the Queen has a few words and I just remember I remember thinking it was really important to her that I told her about my daughter somehow I just needed to say their names to her isn't oh, right. it weird you wanted so the I, Queen I, to know the names of your I just children. I just kind of felt like I needed to, I wanted to mention their name their names in her presence I felt so like she's so important and I just want her I don't know isn't that yeah. weird um, and it was just a very brief kind of conversation. She sort of said, haven't you done well or something? And I said, thank you very much. I'm trying to work for every child in the country. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, well. and then what Sounds happens? Sounds like Bruce Forsyth. Did, did she, she do well? She, they, then she, what she does, she sort of very gently, but very purposefully just pushes you, which is your signal that you then literally, you know, she's pinned on the, the, yeah. the regalia. And she just gives you a little kind of nudge like this. And then you sort of walk, have to walk backwards down, try not to fall over and look a bit of an idiot, curtsy again, and then walk off. Uh, without falling over, which is all the things that kind of go through your head at the time, because you're just so yeah. worried that you're going to. You try to remember how to walk attention. and things. You see, you say that, but you know, it's. I, I guess everybody in the room wants to yeah. see you be successful, or wouldn't it be quite entertaining if someone did fall over? Yeah. So anyway, I didn't. That was good. Uh, 
And yeah, it's one of those things that you never expect is going to happen to you. So no, of course. Know. When do you get the first sort of inkling that it might be on the cards? Or do you just find so out? So I was in the New Year's Honours list and I received a letter in the November. Right. And I'm now myself, I'm now a member of the committee. That So just behave yourself, Jamie. Oh, yeah, well, well I, don't, I don't think I need to worry about that. Um, <laughs> and I've got a, a final question before I want to ask a series of quick fire questions. Um, how have you managed with a very busy and successful career to balance work and family life? I think. Um, and does your husband only see you on anniversaries and birthdays? <laughs> so I've been, I've been very fortunate. Uh, my husband is a businessman, although he's retired now. He's always been very, very interested in what I've been doing. He's always listened and always offered advice from a business perspective. And I think that has been a real strength. You know, there were lots of things that he's advised me about or talked to me about or kind of listened to me talk about and then come back to me a couple of days later and say, have you, have you considered this? And I think that partnership has been brilliant. And I'm just very fortunate with two wonderful daughters. Uh, so I feel very, very lucky. I think that I've always been passionate about what I do. So work doesn't feel like work, just feels like living. And um, it's interesting, isn't it? How kind of you, you fall into routines and you don't even know you're doing it. So we have a, a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel called Holly and she's completely dopey, but at the weekend, she knows, when I get up in the morning, she knows that the first place I'm going to go after I've got a cup of tea is to my study because I will begin work. So she comes upstairs with me and she leads the way into my study. It's all right. She knows my behaviour better than I do. So that notion of constantly working and writing and wanting to do the best I can, you know, it's, it's, I don't think success is just kind of just happens to you. I think it's about really... Sure. Trying to work hard and, and, and the family have always just been there for me, so it's never been a, a problem. Um, right, I'm going to ask you some quick fire question and answers now. So I'm going to ease you into it and then they're going to get a bit harder. So here we go. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Favourite book? Oh, favourite book? Um, the Mansi. Okay. Favourite film? Shawshank. Favourite meal? Roast beef. What skill would you like to master? Play the piano properly and play it like Miss Dawson. What other career might you have liked to have? Uh, politician. Mm, interesting. Mm. You have to get up on the karaoke. What do you, <laughs> what do you sing? <laughs> oh my goodness, that would be total torture. Um, what would I sing? Du, 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 du. If you're happy and you know it. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, followed by me doing head, shoulders, knees and toes um, what's something that you've been meaning to try but haven't got around to um, meaning to try I really I should be able to speak another language I can't, I should be able to do that same is there anything that you've had to unlearn during your career I think this yeah, is a well I think there's. I, I think I'm learning lots about pedagogy in this job now, and makes me think: was I, was I ever a good teacher? <laughs> <laughs> wow, really questioning yourself. But well, that's good, reflecting. Yeah. Um, 
are there, can you think of any experiences or events in your life that have made you who you are? I think, I think meeting my husband, I think having my children, being, there were key things like having that motorcycle accident, you know, you don't expect to be in hospital for three and a half months when you're 17, that's quite a big thing. So there have been some things like that that have sort of jolted me. Um, and then big things that happen like, you know, when my father died and so on. But I think the most formative experiences have been through seeing the success of other children and colleagues. And that's just so wonderful when that happens. Because it's not your success, it's theirs, but you still get all that kind of, isn't that great? Kind of feeling about it. Last one, what are you absolutely determined to do? I'm absolutely determined to work with the profession to sort of liberate it from the shackles of hyper-accountability and uh, that whole kind of thing that says everybody expects you to be doing something wrong instead of doing something right. I really think we can do that. You know? I should be very fed up with myself if I retire having not made a success of, of that and having not shifted us from the point where people are leaving in droves to a point where everybody wants to stay and be the best teacher they can be. And um, we're going to ask for another song choice now. It could be a song that you associate with the time of life that we've talked about. So I was thinking about a song that I could relate to my period of being a head teacher, and I think we used to play Happy, Despicable Me, Happy. We used to dance out of assemblies to that, so that's a good one. Amazing. <laughs>
Okay, so it's about a year since you started uh, your role as Chief Executive of the Chartered College. Um, tell us about the first year and how you found the transition from school to office. So the first year has been amazing in the sense that I moved from school, hadn't really got a clue how I was going to start something from scratch, how I was going to convince people that the Chartered College was even a thing. Um, wasn't really sure how I was going to cope without being in school because I love the job of being in school. So in terms of that last thing, I've um, kind of fed that need for being with children and young people by visiting schools. So tomorrow I'm running an assembly for Year 11's uh, school in London. Yesterday I was in a school in Camden. Uh, so I'm okay with all of that. That's good. Take and I still, fix. I've got my fix. Um, in terms of the whole startup thing, well, I think it's quite an entrepreneurial sort of side of me. I had, we'd started a teaching school. We were in the first cohort of teaching schools before anybody knew what they might be. And I've been really fortunate in appointing some great people. So that's meant that, and we've had some really, because they've been so good. So people like Kat Scott, who came to us as our uh, director of research and education, you know, she produced the first journal pretty much on her own. We had some fantastic people like Rob Coe and so on writing for it, but you know, she pulled all that together with our, um, our publishers and then we appointed an editor, Miriam Davy. She's phenomenal. She came to us from um, Bloomsbury Press. And those kind of colleagues who have really started to form and shape the offer, if you like. Um, other colleagues who have started sort of the whole marketing and setting up the office. And then I've just done an awful lot of running around the country like Mm. pants from a fire trying to talk to people I think that the, the challenge in about the first two or three days was what's my story because I'm no longer a head and I was determined I didn't want to be somebody who said well I used to be a head teacher because everybody hates that no. but I found actually that I didn't need to shift that much because always what I talked about was children and so I just I just carried on talking about children yeah. and that works because hopefully we're in the profession where we care about children so that's that's good. Uh, and the membership suddenly started to take off. So literally a year tomorrow was when we launched membership. And we didn't even know if the computer program was going to run. We didn't even know if it was going to be able to take kind of memberships until it started working. And that was kind of... And I just remember I was speaking at an event in Somerset um, on the, like, the equivalent of, of a year ago um, tomorrow. And saying to the office, well, there's no point me being here because I can't do anything with the computer anyway. So I'm going to go. So I was in Somerset, and and people just started joining in the droves. It was amazing. We had a thousand members in a week. Wow. And so at that point, I began to think, oh, oh gosh, this is real now. So there's so much to do, and uh, I'm not in the slightest bit complacent. I think there's a, a huge offer in terms of. What does it mean to be a professional and how can we provide opportunities for every teacher regardless of their school in terms of their learning and chartered status and access to research and access to a journal and so on and so forth. But I'm also incredibly encouraged by brilliant, brilliant, brilliant people that I've met all year saying we need this, we want this, um, we want to work together, we want to be more informed, we don't want to be isolated and we believe that we do an amazing job day in day out so let's share what we do. So that feels really worthwhile. And literally just this morning, I had a phone call from the head of an independent school. He'd received his uh, free copy of Impact that had come into his school. 
and he phoned to say, this has come across my desk. This is the most exciting thing that has come into my school in 15 years. Normally, when I go through the post, it's all about marketing, people wanting to sell me things. And I've received this journal from you today, and the ideas within it and the way that they're positioned are hugely exciting, let me help. Now, if you just think, that's the equivalent, I suppose, to getting that fix from the child that suddenly, there's a light bulb, they suddenly learn something and you think, oh, wow. So, yeah, it feels, it feels like it's an impossible challenge, but I'm not daunted. And what's, what's in store for the next 12 months then? So we start our pilot for the Chartered Status. We've got our first event uh, literally on Saturday. We've got um, 150 teachers from across all phases um, engaging with that. Um, second national conference. We have a term league conference called our third space event that links to the journal each term. Um, so growing membership, growing the offer to our membership, building the website with resources for teachers, all of these things um, lie in the year ahead. And I, I think the really key thing for me is less of the running around, getting on every train, responding to every call, and more of the strategic working with key people within society who need to understand how important education is in order that teachers aren't seen as, you know, the people that just get on with it, but are seen, are revered really for the work that they do, because when teachers do a, a brilliant job, they change lives. So I think the job will change for me in the next year. Mm. I think it's more of an ambassadorial role going mm. forward. Elevating the profession. Yeah, absolutely. But there will always be a temptation to say yes when I should say no. So I'm, I'm I doubt I shall have a clear diary at any point. Really doubt that. <laughs> um, and as we draw to a close, uh, my penultimate question is, can you tell us who's the biggest, has been the biggest influence in your life so far and why? So the biggest influence in terms of my career is, is um, someone called Mary Jane Drummond. She's an early years lecturer at the University of Cambridge. She was one of my supervisors when I was doing my study. She was a co-author for Learning Without Limits. She's an absolute force of nature and her whole life has been steeped in the study of children and close observation of children, particularly very young children. She introduced me to some phenomenal um, writers and educators that I that sort of read about but also that I've met and and she's a she is a force of nature. So at the point where I was worrying about Ofsted coming into school. I remember her saying to me, Alison, you need to worry about the people that you respect the most. And I remember thinking, well, I'm more frightened of you than I am of Ofsted. <laughs> so, and she was approving of what we were doing. So it kind of gave me courage. I think you know, those people in your life that you seek approval from, and they're never easy to please, but they're the kind of people that spur you on. And if I ever have a point of doubt where I think, am I doing the right thing? I would think, well, what would Mary Jane say? She's on yeah. your shoulder. Yeah. Right, now it's time for the big question. If you were in charge of the education system in England for a day and you could implement one policy or make one change to the system itself, what would it be? I would love to see an education system where we didn't set children, where we didn't hive them off into so-called ability groups, where we expected to find a way through for every child. So... That might be quite controversial, but in my own experience, when when you have high expectations of everybody, everybody grows. Whereas if you tell some people, sorry, you're not good enough, they diminish accordingly. 
So this is about making everybody stronger. Um, and those of us who are uh, intellectually very strong, I think we get stronger by being able to share and refine our ideas in the company of others. So that's what I do. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time, Professor Dame Deputy Lieutenant Alison Peacock. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Do we um, have you got a current or all time favourite song, piece of music? So I think the, the piece of music to end with is Ain't No Stopping Me Now. We're moving.